Hello, I'm Nick, and this is the Niche Aviation Podcast. This week, I'm speaking to Austin Meyer, who is the founder of Xplane. Xplane is the world's most realistic flight simulator. It's used by millions of enthusiasts, pilots, and even aircraft manufacturers. In this episode, we'll discuss why Austin started Xplane, how Xplane became so successful, and Austin's future plan for Xplane. Where I want to start off is right in the beginning. So you started developing Xplane in college in the early 90s. Can you just talk me through a bit about that, why you started and what was your main goal when you first started? Yeah, sure. So uh, back when I was in college, I was having uh, a really hard time passing an instrument currency check, which is where you basically put on the hood so you can't see anything you know, at all outside the window. You still have to fly the airplane through a whole bunch of instrument approaches and stuff. And uh, I eventually passed it, but I had to go up like three or four times to, uh, you know, to pass the test. And what I said after that was, you know what, I don't ever want to have such a hard time uh, passing an instrument currency test again. I want to be prepared next time. And the way I decided to do that would be to write a flight simulator to uh, practice my instrument flying. And the thing is, Microsoft Flight Sim simply did not have the flexibility in entering different aircraft designs and different instrument panels and stuff like that. And so I could not get what I wanted out of Microsoft Flight Sim. So I decided, let me try it myself. I figured the best way to simulate the Piper Archer that I was flying at the time, the best way to simulate it would be to aerodynamically break the airplane down into a bunch of little pieces and find the forces on each piece, so the wing, the stabilizer, the prop, you know, you name it, and add up all those forces to find what the total forces are on the airplane and accelerate the plane. That's just the first principles way to see what the Piper Archer is going to do, which is always going to be more accurate than trying to fake every little bit of the flight model to hit some sort of a predetermined, uh, you know, result. And um, once I did that, I had a flight sim called Pipe, uh, called Piper Archer 2 IFR. No, it was called Archer 2 IFR. Archer 2 IFR, an IFR simulation of the Archer. Uh, but I almost instantly saw that this first principles approach to loading up, you know, all the forces on an airplane could be applied to any airplane in the world, not just the Archer 2. And so at that point, I changed the name from Archer 2 IFR to X-Plane because it can simulate any airplane. And so then you finished college and you decided to work on X-Plane full-time. And this was in the mid-90s, pretty pretty early internet, if not before the internet. What gave you the confidence that this was a business? Okay, so uh, two two things were happening uh, at the same time um, that, that, that caused me to get started in X-Plane. One is that communism failed, and the <laughs> other is that Babylon 5 existed. And between the fall of communism and the existence of Babylon 5, all the pieces were there. And here's what I mean by that. Um, as communism was falling, it was suddenly apparent that the United States did not need to have a gigantic aerospace uh, defense force ready to defend against the red tide. And so anything that I would have just automatically done getting out of college, oh, let me go work for Boeing, let me go work for Lockheed, you know, let me, let me build military airplanes or something like that. All of a sudden, the budget for all those things was slashed. And so it was obvious all of a sudden that I couldn't just get a job at a defense contractor designing uh, aerospace defense projects. I had to do something on my own. What was I going to do on my own? Well, you could download Babylon 5 episodes off of this newfangled thing called, and I'm going to see if I pronounce this correctly, the internet. 
And um, when I saw the power of the internet to distribute uh, Babylon 5 episodes illegally, I was like, well, wait a minute, I could put other things on this internet. And uh, it, I need a page that starts with www. Well, let me see. It looks like Explain is available, and that's just what I named my flight sim just now, so let me try that. And so um, basically the fall of communism caused me to not get into just working for some aerospace company, and the existence of the internet to distribute anything caused me to say, well, let me try putting my flight sim on the internet. They both happened at the same time. Did it? Was it an immediate success? How, did it, how what were the early, early days like? Um, I don't know if I should call it an immediate success or not. Um, I was selling it for $600 and I might sell, wow. you know, one copy every couple of days or something like that. It was just to pilots that really were serious about trying something incredible and new and different on their computer. And so uh, I was initially living in a little $300 a month apartment by the airport. I think, what was I making? Maybe $12,000 a year or something like that, which is technically below poverty level. But when you're single and your rent's $300 a month and you already have a Camaro, you know, $12,000 a year is fine. <laughs> so I, I, had, I had my apartment, my Camaro, and xplane.com. That was all I needed. $12,000 a year was plenty. And, um, and that's how I got started. And it just gradually... As the more people bought it, the more feedback I got on what I needed to do to make it better, which caused more people to get it, which caused me to get more feedback to make it better. The whole thing just took off like a turbocharger on this virtuous cycle where the greater the adoption, the greater the adoption, because the adoption drove the, the increase in the product uh, quality as people fed back you know, their, their feedback to me. And also, of course, the more people I have, the lower I can make the price. And the lower I can make the price, the more people I have. So the whole thing just takes off. It's a virtuous cycle. We're seeing this now with electric vehicles today. Uh, every day, more people buy electric vehicles, which causes more people to know about electric vehicles, which causes more people to buy electric vehicles, which causes more people to install charging stations. And we're seeing uh, electric vehicles uh, take off today to replace these uh, you know, dinosaur-burning pieces of junk, which I now know that all other cars are, which I didn't know a year ago. Um, and so we see these kind of virtuous cycles. We're also about to hit a new virtuous cycle, I think, with genomics, artificial intelligence, battery technology, uh, the blockchain, cryptography, you know, AI, all these things are right at these inflection points and are about to take off. And as these uh, businesses increase, it's going to increase their use, which is going to drive down their price, which is going to increase their use, which is going to increase investment in those technologies, which is going to cause them to take off more. And so we're at like an inflection point, I think, in humanity and culture and technology that we've never seen before, thanks to these technologies. And shout out to uh, someone named Kathy Wood of the ARC Funds. If anybody wants to go Google something after this podcast, Google ARC Funds and Kathy Woods. She's the one that's on top of this uh, new generation technology we're entering into. And she set up some mutual funds to let anyone, including you and me, uh, invest in those funds and realize part of that future just as a simple investment. But at any rate, the S-curve on the internet was just taking off around 1995 or so, which is when I was starting X-Plane. So of course I was in the right place at the right time with all the right little pieces falling into place. When did you learn that your, when did you believe that your software was more than a game so that's a fascinating question. When, you, when did I learn it's more than a game? And I guess the answer is, uh, when I fly a real airplane, is that a game? I'm not sure. Maybe it is a game. I mean, when I fly an airplane, I'm having fun. Does that make real flying a game? And so I guess what this really comes down to is I'm not sure exactly what a game is. If a game is something that's fun and you're trying to achieve an objective and not lose, I think that describes flying a real airplane. And uh, X-Plane simulates that. 
So I think, to me, there's really no difference between a flight simulator and a game. It's the same thing. You know what your objective is, is to get from point A to point B. And you know what losing looks like. I think we all know what losing looks like in an airplane. And we all know what winning is. It's getting there in one piece. And uh, so I think that a simulator is a game. There is not a difference between the two things. Now, that said, when I see other people make video games that do not have accurate flight models, I simply view that as a game that is not fun. And it is not fun (laughs) because it is not representing a thing that could actually happen. To me, the game is only fun if I believe it could be real. Otherwise, it's not fun for me. And so X-Plane, I think, is a game, but it's fun because it flies like the real airplane. And you know that whatever happened to you in the sim would have happened to you in reality. It's sort of like, to me, a good movie is one I can kind of put myself in the shoes of the character or believe could actually happen to me. That's when I really get engrossed in a movie. And that's how I feel when I'm playing X-Plane, because it... Whatever happens to the sim would hopefully be close to what would happen in the real airplane. And so it's just like, it's just a game that, that plays like real life, I think is the idea. So for someone looking at X-Plane from the outside, they would be like, well, this is just a, a video game for, for enthusiasts. But actually, when you dig a bit deep, well, you don't even have to dig that deep. You, you realize, well, first of all, it's, it is used by enthusiasts. But actually, on top of that, there are professional pilots that use it because it's FAA certified, um, the commercial licenses. There are businesses which exist just to build aircraft, but also uh, improve the world editing. There are hardware manufacturers that produce equipment just for X-Plane and manufacturers use X-Plane to test their designs. How have you focused on developing this ecosystem and and because it's incredible? Well, it's... The beautiful thing is I actually don't have to focus. All I focus on is making sure anybody can do anything they want with the simulator. That's what I focus on. And making sure that we have great customer service and tech support. So if anything doesn't work right, we find out about it. And I personally find out about it. So all I do is try and make sure that it's open as possible for anyone to interact with. It's supported, so if someone can't interact with it, we find out, (laughs) and um, that it's a great product. If anybody's not happy with it, I find out about it. And once I've done that, then each person can decide for themselves whether they want to use the sim, and if so, for what. So you're leaving it as open as possible, and um, you're building that great product. Because I can imagine that different people have different opinions on what how you should improve. Based on having a number of different customers, how do you prioritize and how do you decide what is right to do? Well, you know, that's fascinating. So the Tesla Model S, the my opinion, the best car in the world. My wife drives one. I drive a Tesla Model 3. They make all gas-burning cars look like garbage. Um, I was watching Elon Musk interviewed the other day, and he said when he built the Tesla Model S, he was just building a car for him. He's like, what would what do I think would be the best car? There's no no uh, you know like design by committee BS going on. He said, what's the best car I can I can have for myself? And he built it. Well, that's what I did when I initially started explaining. My first question was, what's the sim that I want for myself? But over time, that has changed a little bit. Over time, as I hear back from all these other customers, I'm forced to ask a thousand different times. Well, what does this customer need to maximize utility to sim for the broader market? And so I'm constantly getting people asking me to add stuff to explain, right? I'm getting it all the time. And every single time I get this question, I, I 
ask a question of myself when looking at the feature request is, and then that question is, does this benefit the broader market? And if it's something that just one customer wants that I don't think benefits the broader market, then I'm going to say, no, I'm not doing that feature request. But if it's something that will benefit the broader market and benefit everyone, then I'll say, yes, this sounds like a great idea. Let me go ahead and code it. I'm going to roll it into the next release. And so I have learned to say no to the people that have tunnel vision and can only see just one little feature to benefit their little use case. And I've learned to say yes to the people that say, you know, hey, Austin, it'd be pretty nice if we had auto gyros in here. You know, Austin, you know, some jet engines are one stage and some are, you know, or, or one spool and some are two spool. There's a lot of each in aviation. You should probably support them both, you know, accurately in the sim. And so I've learned when to say no and when to say yes to feature request. And so within that, though, I can imagine that different customers have different priorities and and your mainstream will change. So I noticed that a couple of years ago, you released the mobile app, which has done incredibly successful and has over a million downloads. And I can imagine the people who use the mobile app are very different to your enthusiasts who have got their custom-built PC just for X-Plane. Oh, yeah. They're absolutely completely different markets. So one of the things I've been surprised by is no matter what we do with X-Plane on Steam, even just Steam, it's just a different distribution mechanism. It has almost no impact on our sales at xplane.com. No matter what we do at xplane.com, it has no impact on mobile. And when Microsoft is coming out with their latest sim, you know, the internet was, you know, every news was saying, Austin's going to be bankrupt, you know, which of course I've been hearing, you know, probably about once every 30 days for the past 20 years, right? He's going to be bankrupt this time, right? My words. These are people like short sell Tesla, right? Tesla's going to fail next year, I swear. But what I find is that one product has no impact on the other. My sales have had no, not been impacted by Microsoft at all. If somebody, that's like saying, if somebody makes a documentary movie, are people going to suddenly stop watching documentary movies because the Avengers 5 came out? No. You don't, you don't say, I'm watching the Avengers, therefore I'll never watch another documentary. That's not how the world works. And so one product has shockingly little impact on the other. Microsoft's, Microsoft sales have no correlation. If you just look at the sales graph, to my sales, mobile has nothing to do with desktop. Desktop has nothing to do with Steam. They're all completely independent apps from a sales standpoint, none of which has any impact on the other. So that's what I've observed historically. Now, let's talk about a kind of an interesting little bit of the future here. What I have been doing, and we have not marketed this very much, but we're certainly doing it, is making the mobile code and the desktop code more and more and more converged. We recently took the flight model of X-Plane from the desktop version and moved it into the iPhone version. The moment we did that, the iPhone version got way more realistic from a flight modeling standpoint. Now, the people using the phone didn't maybe notice it that much, and maybe they didn't even care that much. But here's where this gets really fascinating to me. When we have one product that we can deploy across many platforms, well, it's just a force multiplier. That's all it is. It's a force multiplier. It allows me to code something once and then get benefit across what is effectively three different products, Steam, desktop, and mobile. And the decision I'm always going to make is going to be to maximize my force multiplication. And we are at Laminar Research right now. We're working very hard to converge the code base. When I first wrote uh, X-Plane 
uh, mobile for the iPhone. It was a completely separate product because this is back on the iPhone 1. It had almost no memory, almost no graphics power, almost no capabilities. And so we had to write this tiny, tiny little program. In fact, I'll tell you a little joke, a little inside story here. When we were first working on the iPhone version, we actually went to Apple Computer. And I'm sure I'll get in a tiny bit of trouble for saying this, but this is what we did. And nobody thought a flight simulator could live on a phone. And I was sitting down in the cafeteria and one of the people at Apple knew who I was, and he saw I was there, but he didn't know why. He goes, what you doing, Austin? Getting X-Plane working on an iPhone? <laughs> That'll be the day, you know, and got back to his lunch. And, and I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to answer that question or not. Because remember, when the iPhone first came out, it was such a weak little device that the idea of using it for a flight simulator seemed impossible. Well, look how far we've come. We're now at power on these phones that has just hugely exponentially increased. And Apple is now introducing a new technology called silicon, which is new hardware that uses less power to give greater performance. And we're measuring this. We're measuring this in the company. We're seeing higher performance and less power. The, the, the promise that Apple makes is being realized. Uh, silicon is fast and doesn't use much power. And this matters because it means we can use the same processors soon on both the iPads and the laptops and perhaps even the desktops. And so we are seeing a hardware convergence. So here's where I'm going with this. Apple is literally doing the job to give hardware convergence. At Laminar Research, we are doing the job to give software convergence. When the hardware is converging and the software is converging, the future is suddenly undeniable. And that is... Anyone can log into the X-Plane virtual world with whatever hardware they got. It doesn't matter if it's desktop. It doesn't matter if it's mobile. It doesn't matter if it's Steam. It doesn't matter whether you got it from Steam or xplane.com. You're simply logging into the world with whatever hardware you've got. And it's going to be the same chips down under the metal and the same software down under, under the case. The whole mobile versus desktop argument is going to fade away when there's no difference between mobile and desktop. And then especially once we go to virtual reality, which we will do, and have VR headsets hooked up to our phones, as we clearly will have, you're basically entering an X-Plane virtual world. Doesn't matter whether you're on a phone or desktop or where you got the license key. It makes no difference at all. And so this whole mobile versus desktop thing is a temporary argument that doesn't actually make any sense. And some people on the iPhone version, they'll actually get mad I'm spending money on, or time, well, time, money, and thought energy on desktop. And people that have the desktop version get mad that I'm spending time, money, and thought energy on mobile. They each get mad that I'm spending money and time elsewhere. But what they don't know is the code that we are writing, the hardware that Apple is making, and the virtual reality headsets that are starting to come around guarantee that soon what you're going to do is enter a virtual world. It doesn't matter what hardware. Yeah. And it's how incredible is the virtual world you're creating. And that has nothing to do with desktop or iPhone. So the whole argument between desktop and iPhone is nothing but a false argument. And at Laminar Research, we have been, I think, very good about not getting sucked into that argument, but instead just building the best product and sharing the code between projects so whatever coding improvements I make on one platform automatically benefits the other. And that's how we move forwards towards the future we want to have, which is where the hardware goes away. It's not a thing. All you're thinking about is the world you've entered.
Yeah, and and sorry, just on that, it's quite interesting as you talk about efficiency quite a lot. And I know from previous, your actual development team is very small relative to the project that and the product that you have. It's clear that it has been a priority because you haven't scaled up to a huge organization and you haven't raised tons of VC money as in the US. Everyone seems to be doing it now. <laughs> why, why have you taken the harder route? Oh, this is so fascinating. And here's the answer to it. X-Plane absolutely lends itself to growing organically. Organically meaning no investment capital needed. I'm 100% order blame on research. I don't go to other people asking for money. I don't need to. Because when I started X-Plane, I was just living in my dinky little apartment by the airport making 12000 a year, and that was all I needed. And I kept writing the code, writing the code, making the app better. And each time the app would get better, I'd get more sales. Each time I'd get more sales, I'd hire one more person. Uh, I remember back, it was me and Randy Witt and Ben Supnick and Sergio Santagata. And it was you know just the four of us for some years. But then we kept adding more and more people as uh, as as the money came in, the product quality had to improve more. More expertise had to be brought in to improve, you know, each bit of the product. And so, you know, now we're up to I think there's like 20 or 30 of us now. We check in every week remotely. Nobody actually commutes anywhere in a car. Uh, it's all you know remote. We all work out of our house. But every every Monday morning we check in with each other, and I think it's about 30 people on that uh, on that group email. So there's about 30 of us, including part timers. And um, to me, that's not a small group. To, to write uh, a computer program. Um, to me, 30 is it's a good size company. I don't feel the need for us to be any bigger or smaller. And certainly, I mean, money is, is, no, is frankly no object. I don't need venture capital money. I make enough money from sales of X-Plane to make whatever move I want to make next. And uh, the move I want to make next is just to keep doing what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Just stead- It's like the tortoise and the hare. I'm perfectly happy to just be the tortoise and just keep marching, marching, marching along, making the sim you know, a bit better every 30 days. And that's what we're doing. And the tortoise doesn't need venture capital, right? He just keeps trudging on along and he will eventually get to the finish line. He doesn't need to borrow money or take venture capital or any of that. He just keeps marching. And that's what we're doing. And it's just the internet just makes it so easy to do that. Because whether I have one customer or a million customers, it actually makes almost no difference. Yeah. All that makes a difference, all, all, all that matters is how good an app we write. And me and, and, and about 20 or 30 people or so, we're just making this app. And however many people buy it, buy it. Yeah, and I think that's the incredible bit of the, the world we live in now and the fact that you can create a business and you can have millions of customers and fully scalable software. You talk about the technology and the importance of it and how it's driving it. How much of your success is, do you think has come from the improvement in technology over time? Oh, gosh, you know, a huge amount. Like they say, we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And so, I mean, without question, if I didn't have uh, certain things that Apple does really, really well, Notice I'm not saying Apple is a great company or they do everything well. (laughs) I'll say they do certain things very well. And the certain things that Apple does very well allow me to work very efficiently. And being able to work very efficiently allows me to build products. The, The technology that Apple provides in their operating system lets me work quickly. And the App Store that they provided, what a thing of beauty that App Store is. Let's think about that. Anybody can get on the App Store, right? If you can make the app, you can get on the App Store. It used to be, it wasn't that long ago, you had to land the distributor contract, right, to get your app out there. And how do you get a distributor? And most people, they they don't deserve a distributor. They're too small. Oh, but these guys, they're big. They're very small. They should get a distribution deal. And so it's like this kind of closed wall. Who do you know? How much experience do you have? All these blockades to building an app. 
And the moment Apple released the App Store, all that went away. You could be someone that has no reputation, no money, no credibility, no connections. Doesn't matter. The Apple Store treats everyone equally. Anyone can put an app on the App Store. You're obviously seeing this with podcasts. And I saw it with the App Store. I think maybe the word is democratization. Maybe that's the right word. Maybe not. I don't know. To answer your question, what technology has enabled me, I would say the App Store, it's enabled me. But more importantly, more importantly, it's enabled millions of other people as well. One of the things I find amazing is not just how technology may enabled your customers, but also improved the product. So recently you had the Vulcan improvement, the Vulcan and Metal improvements. Um, and what I'm seeing there is your product is becoming more and more realistic. Um, and people have add-ons and things, and, and it becomes, and it looks more and more like flying. And as a result, you now have this huge commercial aspect to you as well in terms of manufacturers use your product to test their aircraft. Can you talk a bit behind this? Sure. So OpenGL was a graphics technology that was designed long ago uh, to do graphics. But the problem is when they designed it, all these computers weren't multi-core. The OpenGL was kind of designed for like the one core machine in mind. And as a result, when you can only do one thing at a time, there's going to be pauses. There's going to be jitters or, or breaks or shutters. And uh, so OpenGL simply did not have the multi-threaded firepower to run without any sort of pauses or jitters. So we switched over to Vulcan or Metal to try to solve that problem. And um, that lets us run with no frame rate stutters or breaks or, or hiccups. And that is absolutely critical to the professional market. The professional market, when they're flying a simulator for, for flight training, they cannot have the sim pausing or stuttering. And uh, so we're, we have moved to Vulcan to, to meet the need of the professional customer, which is no stuttering in the sim. And the request came in from my professional customers saying, oh, so I need your SIM to not stutter. I was like, oh yeah, that benefits everyone to solve that problem. And so that's a feature request that I took so seriously. Um, we made it our focus in the company for the past couple of years to, to get that done. And uh, as a result, we now have Vulcan and Metal. They don't pause, or X-Plane does not pause. It does not stutter. Uh, this benefits the pro customers, but it also benefits everyone else because now we get a SIM that doesn't stutter. Now, as far as the look goes, in theory, Vulcan and Metal doesn't look much different than OpenGL. But in practice, I do find the shaders look a little different. The anti-aliasing is a little different. Um, and so there are some differences. And those differences are actually going to increase over time, right? Because our company resources are going to the Vulcan and the Metal now, not OpenGL. And we're going to drop support for OpenGL at some point. I don't know exactly when, by the way. I might tell you if I knew, but I don't know. That's a Ben Suffolk <laughs> thing. But um, we are moving to Metal uh, it may look a little better, perhaps, or maybe different. I'm not even sure it's better, but it it, it runs without stuttering. And that's the critical thing we had to do to meet the needs of the pro customers. Yeah, and that's what I find interesting as well. You were talking about the, the professionals, trainers, and the simulators. So I know from I've had discussions with people who manufacture or run flight training centers, and a simulator can cost anywhere between 12 and $20 million dollars. Um, how long before you see, or do you think it's ever possible that X-Plane will, will, can be used for that instead and you can, you can start creating simulators for commercial use as for training pilots? Or So I don't know the answer to that question. Um, this is surprisingly going to be difficult for us. And let me tell you why. When you get up to these so-called level D simulators, which are the $20 million simulators, they are so perfectly tuned 
to one particular aircraft with every little system, every little circuit breaker, every little quirk of that airplane. They're so perfectly tuned to one exact airplane that you cannot use the sim for anything else but this one exact airplane. And that kind of flies in the face of like everything I want to do with X-Plane. And so X-Plane has been used for flight training. It is being used for flight training. It is used in certified installations. And we are moving it more into uh, certified installations. Uh, Precision Flight Controls is switching over to X-Plane 11 to get certified uh, and certifying that for a lot of their installations. So we are, X-Plane is certified for use in flight training, will continue to be, but I think we're going to find there's a limit to how far we can take that as we start to bump into things that get so airplane-specific that X-Plane just is too general a case to handle it anymore. Yeah. And so there, let's just say there's a limit to how far we can push this technology before we give up on everyone else. You see, because if I say, all right, now I'm doing the Boeing 737-800, to the point that I'm coding that particular airplane and leaving every, you know, hanging everyone else out to dry because the features are so, you know, oriented around the quirks of this particular airplane that nobody else can simulate anything. At that point, I've done a net harm, not a net good. And so that's that's the point where I stop. Now, that said, I have some people that I'm under NDA with, so I, I cannot go into the details with you. But there is someone that is using X-Plane for a sim very much like the one you described, way up at the very, very high certification levels. But they're having to do a lot of the work themselves. So it's like X-Plane is their core. But then since they're the pilots of this airplane, they know how to program specific systems that they add via plugins. But what that means is X-Plane isn't doing all of the work. X-Plane's only doing some of the work. But I was just interested because I, I listened to one of the... Um videos with you on and you talked about actually how some of some of the testing on EV toll you've been using you you can plug in an EV toll aircraft on X plane and it'll it'll get you 75% of the way in terms of how that aircraft will perform yeah and we've we've uh we've usually do, done a lot better than 75% of the way so X plane lets you simulate vertical takeoff landing aircraft and electric aircraft I have flight tested uh, many airplanes in X-Plane, including electric vertical takeoff and landing airplanes. And we have found that most of the performance of the simulator is, is very close to, this, to the performance of the actual airplane when we fly the actual airplane. Now, one little problem we ran into is um, sometimes if you start to turn those propellers so fast that the tip of the prop gets near the speed of sound, X-Plane did not do a perfect job of predicting that uh, transonic drag rise build up on the blade tips. So, you know, it's like an area where, where I could do better. So that's like an area that I'm going to be doing some uh, research into in the future. So X-Plane is, is typically extremely close, but once you start getting surfaces up to close to the speed of sound and the air can't decide whether it's subsonic or supersonic, and you start getting into transonic drag rise buildup, that's where a lot of the theory uh, and the approximations start to become not good enough. So right around transonic, right around as you get a surface close to the speed of sound, and I'm not talking about whole... That this would apply to whole airplanes. I'm talking about propellers at this moment, propeller tips at this moment. Yeah. That's where uh, the, the blade element theory, I'm going to continue to try and improve it. Just on that then, do you think X-Plane is making it easier to launch or build aircraft then because the fact that you've lowered significantly lower the cost of testing aircraft and designing aircraft? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people can put in the design of any airplane they can imagine, test flight in the sim, and there are certain things the X-Plane is not going to be strong enough about. Uh, performance very close to the speed of sound, right around Mach 1, where the flow starts going from uh, subsonic to transonic and then supersonic. Um, that's an area that's really hard to predict exactly what's going to happen, which was one of the fears they had when Chuck Yeager was flying the Bell X-1. Uh, they knew they'd fly it subsonically, they figured it might work supersonically, but they couldn't tell what was going to happen, the transition from one to the other. And the first supersonic flight, if I recall correctly, I seem to recall it was made by mistake, right? The first uh, time Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, his first radio transmission was, your mock meter's broken. This thing says I just exceeded the speed of sound. So um, nobody uh, has found a really good way to simulate exactly what's going to happen close to the speed of sound. Another thing that's really hard to do is so-called lifting bodies. When we have really long, thin wings, there's a theory of those long, thin wings that is uh, so carefully dialed in and documented and proven, you can figure out what a glider is going to do to within 1% or 2% or something crazy like that. But once you get into lifting bodies, like the, uh, you know, really, or, or a wing like, say, the Concorde, which is really low aspect ratio, it's not a long, thin wing, and airflow curving up around the leading edge of that wing is significant. You get into low aspect ratio wings and lifting bodies. That's where the traditional theory breaks down. So I'd say some weak points in X-Plane are uh, lifting bodies and transonic flight. And you're not going to get super close performance in those regimes. But other than those regimes, I found X-Plane to be extremely close and certainly get you a lot better than 75% of the way there even. And so how much further do you have to go? And, and it'd be interesting to understand your future plans for X-Plane in terms of getting as close to reality as possible. Right. So I'm going to continue to refine the blade element theory. Um, I'll probably be spending more time on transonic uh, flight and lifting bodies, which are the, the, the two elements of flight that kind of defy uh, current computational models. And um, as I said, we got the source code migrating between many different platforms so that we have one code base that satisfies all customers on all hardware. That's the ultimate goal. Um, we're working on uh, massive uh, multiplayers. Everybody can fly online together. And I mean, my ultimate goal is to have a world where you log into it from any device. It doesn't matter what kind of device. And you might as well be in a real airplane mentally. And uh, the thing is, you're just, you're in a sim. And nobody cares if you're on a, on a Windows or Mac or iPhone or Android. It makes no difference. You're in a VR headset. That's what you are. It doesn't matter what drives it. And uh, I think that's a goal. Another possible uh, way to answer the question or look at this is for like X-Plane 10 or 11, I think it was, I said, I needed to have a plausible world. I can't, I can't reproduce the real world perfectly, although Microsoft has made huge steps in doing that, obviously. But my thought at that time was, I cannot produce a real world. Let me produce a plausible world. And I think I've done that. I produced a plausible world, for, or we, we did that. We produced a plausible world for version 11. Um, moving forwards, we want to get it closer and closer to the real world, which we can do with the data that is becoming available. But the real world to me is, is going to be somewhat interesting. What I'm going to find much, much more interesting is the dynamic, unpredictable world. That's what I'm really looking for, a dynamic, unpredictable world where you get into that airplane and you want to complete a mission and you do not know what the state of the weather, the airports, the air traffic control, the other airplanes and your airplane, you don't know what state those things are going to be in in two hours or an hour when you arrive. The question is, can you still complete a mission 
when nothing goes as planned. And that's when you fly a real airplane. And I've used this analogy before, so pardon me if anyone listening to the podcast has heard this before. But when you fly a real airplane, it's like playing a game of chess where the other side of the board is played by nature and nature moves all the pieces at the same time slowly. That's what it's like to fly a light airplane. You take off, you're trying to get you know, your pawn to the other side of the board or your queen to the other side of the board, and nature is slowly moving all the pieces at the same time towards you. And your goal is to get one of your, you know, your pawns to the other end and, and kingdom. And, uh, and, and it feels like that when you're flying an airplane because the weather is gradually changing, right? The, the air traffic, and it's changing in all places at once where you are and where you're going and at all your alternate airports. The weather changes at all places at once. The characteristics of your airplane are changing. That fuel load, it ain't getting any more full over time. And uh, all your temperatures, you know, oxygen, hydraulic fluid, oil, fuel, you name it, every fluid and, and, and gas in the airplane is getting hotter or colder or being depleted. And that plane will not fly forever. It makes that very clear to you. And uh, the airports are always changing, right? Did someone crash on a runway? Is there snow on the runway? Is there ice on the runway? Is this airport shut down by ice or snow? What about the weather? Am I going to be able to land there? Is the weather going to be too low? Well, what about the alternates? And so being able to complete a flight in an airplane is a little bit like playing a game of chess where all the pieces on the board are moving slowly at the same time. And you can never check out mentally. You can never mentally check out of that game right? Or someone's going to get you from some direction. <laughs> and uh, my goal with X-Plane is to try to communicate that feeling to the customer. Communicate the feeling of taking off and knowing that they can count on nothing, but know what opportunities their airplane gives them to complete the mission. And they're not unlimited opportunities because the airplane is not infallible. And how far away do you think all of those are? Well, I mean, you could say we've taken our first tentative step now with uh, over a thousand failures that can happen on your airplane and with real weather, which you can turn on, right? So you can turn on real weather in X-Plane. You can uh, set random failures in X-Plane right now. And the failures, you can check a little box, say random mean time between failure 500 hours or whatever you want. So we've taken our first tentative steps in that direction. But I think when this is really going to come together is when we have some sort of a logbook or a mission where when you, you know, log on to your copy of X-Plane and you start that flight, you know that whatever, whatever happens to terminate that flight is going to stay with you. It's going to stay with you as a ding in your logbook that's associated with your account um, or something like that. And so you understand that completion of the mission is uh, a thing that you want to accomplish and you're not going to be able to put it on autopilot and go have dinner and then come back later. <laughs> that's that's going to be the goal. And when you really feel like you have to complete that flight successfully and navigate air traffic, weather, aircraft failures, airports, ATC, et cetera, to get to that goal, and then you land and you have the feeling of having made it, that you get in a real airplane, uh, that's... That's the next thing I want to communicate to customers. And I don't know exactly how long it's going to take to get there, but setting up uh, the massively multiplayer online world that we're working on and all the million things can go wrong and the real weather and the new the new uh, weather rendering and whatnot that we're obviously building internally right now, um, those are all steps you know, or, or pieces in that puzzle. Brilliant. I'm, I'm super excited for that and I'm really excited for the future developments of it. 
if someone wants to learn more about yourself uh, or explain, where's the best place for them to reach out? Just just explain.com, x-plane.com. That's just a website and you can download a free demo, try it. I have a feeling most people listening to this podcast may have already heard of Explain. I don't know, maybe not, but uh, it's x-plane.com and there's a free demo. Amazing. Austin, I could literally talk with you for hours and I know you have to rush off to lunch, um, but thank you very much for all your time and, and this, it's been incredible. Okay, awesome. No problem. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Austin. Thanks again for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're new to the podcast, please do subscribe and share this episode with a friend or two. Next week's episode is all about agricultural aviation or more specifically crop dusting. I'm speaking to an interesting couple based out of Minnesota, and I really think you'll enjoy the episode. Until then, have a great week.